Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Last week, I delivered an episode on women in France during World War I and its immediate aftermath. Today, we're ending our specials for Women's History Month with an interview with one of the leading scholars on women in Vichy, Dr. Sarah Fishman wherein we talk about how France went from being arguably the least free country in the developed world for women in the 1920s and 1930s to today being possibly the most egalitarian country for women on planet Earth. After graduating from Harvard University, Dr. Fishman went to France where she interviewed wives of French prisoners of war for her first book, We Will Wait, Wives of French Prisoners of War, 1940-1945. From her position at the University of Houston, she transitioned to studying juvenile delinquency under Vichy for her 2002 book, The Battle for Children, World War II, Youth Crime and Juvenile Justice in 20th Century France. Her most recent work, From Vichy to the Sexual Revolution, Gender, Marriage, and Family in France, 1945 to 1965, moves beyond Vichy and examines how women and children's lives changed after liberation. I could spend an hour just reading through her CV, so for now I'll just say she's very accomplished. In addition to her prolific work on modern French women, she co-authored the book France and Its Empire Since 1870 with Alice Conklin and Robert Zaretsky, two major figures in modern French studies. So, if you're looking for a good book that is both in-depth but also accessible to non-experts, I highly recommend it. On a personal note, she is my advisor and the chair of my dissertation committee, so I suppose some credit for this entire podcast is owed to her and the many conversations that we have had both in and out of the classroom over the past couple years. With that, here is my conversation with Dr. Fishman on women from Vichy to present. From Vichy to Alizé, Making the Modern French Woman with Dr. Sarah Fishman. Thank you very much for uh, sitting down with me. Is it right to say you are the world's leading expert on women in the Vichy period? I'm not sure I would say the world's leading. I would say that I was one of the first, amongst the first to start looking at the lives of women beyond women in the resistance in France during, during Vichy years. So, you know, um, and not just women, but children also. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your specific work? Yeah. So the first time uh, what happened was I went to France. I had proposed to my advisor uh, something about women in France because there were already there were already some interesting books on women in U.S. 
during World War II and women in Germany during World War II. And the only thing you could find in France were stories of w women in the resistance. And he thought it was a good idea. So I went over and in the, the old-fashioned card catalog deal. Right. And the word for woman and the word for wife are the same word in French. So it's femme. And so I'm looking up femme in the subject catalog and I keep finding femme de prisonnier, which means prisoner of war wife. And I found it and kept finding it and finding it. And I thought, Who, what's the deal with these POW wives? And then I discovered you know, that it was a really large group of women, that a huge number of French soldiers had been captured in the Battle of France and were away for four or five years from their families and that the wives had, you know, and they had formed their own, there were so many entries because they formed their own association and they published a monthly little newspaper, magazine kind of thing. And so it, that's how that ended up happening. And looking at questions about the impact of war on women's lives, it seemed to me that this was one of the groups that had the most direct impact and that that would be an interesting group to, to look at because it was a really large, I estimated, I think something like 700,000 women hmm. um, without their husbands, maybe, I can't remember the numbers exactly. So um, so anyway, that uh, and, and at that time, this is in the 80s, um, the, a lot of the women were still alive. So I managed to do a lot of interviews and correspondence with uh, women whose husbands had been POWs and sometimes with their husbands. Um, and so one of the topics that came up as I was writing about prisoner of war wives or researching is this concern about their children and you know mothers don't aren't the authority figures in their families so what's going to happen when dad's away and a concern that women would not be able to exert authority and um, you know a lot of writing about that and even amongst the women telling each other well how, here's how here's some ways you can do it um, think about what your husband would say, you know, what would right. he do, right? Um, and so, um, which I argue was a form of sort of acting as if, you, which is a temporary role, which you can then give back. So anyway, um, but, so the children, at the same time, you had a tripling of the number of kids appearing before juvenile courts between 1940 and 1942. And that was rather shocking, especially for a conservative government that wants to remoralize society and and get all the kids, you know, strong and healthy and, you know, pro-French and anti-Semitic and whatever else they right. wanted. But, um, but they, uh, so they were really concerned and of course they put the two together because a lot of the research from before the war had, had sort of posited that father absence is a huge cause of delinquency. And um, there are a lot of problems with that work that came before the war, but that was just an easy assumption, was that it's because all the fathers are gone that these kids are going crazy. So when I, I moved into the second book just with that question, is, is that true? And it was such an easy answer, no. <laughs> there were very few children of POWs in the, in the groups of kids that appeared before the courts. And I discovered that by going through court documents. Um, it was other kids. So then the question is, well, why so many other kids? And you know, what, was, you know, what, did, what did it tell us about French society during the occupation. Um, so that's when I got interested in, you know, sort of there in the context of children's lives during the war. And in the, also, if you look at it in the context of adult crime, it's a situation where um, it's not clear, you know, the lines are blurred. I mean, your family's starving. You might, you know, try to get some food outside of the official system of rationing. Um, you know, you might buy on the black market, you might go out to the farm and buy stuff, which is strictly speaking illegal. And so with adults blurring that line, it's no surprise that kids did as well. And if you look at the 
um, relative increase in juvenile and adult crime rates. It's it's almost identical curve. Hmm. Of course, many more cases for adults. So I argue in the book it's the same circumstances that cause adults to be more and more finding themselves in court that are causing kids to, you know, that there's there's need and there's opportunity. Um, kids, most kids in France stopped going to school at age 13. And so they're working, and they're working in places where they have exposure to, you know, flour if they're in a bakery or steel. If I mean, you wouldn't believe the stuff that they could haul home for their parent to help their parents. I would believe. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yes. Not to say that uh, I was ever caught for anything. But in any case, I think there's a, a lot of really good stuff to um, unpack there. One thing, uh, one small thing I just want to note is that you make a case uh, in your book that it was actually the prisoners of war uh, returning that mm-hmm. caused more of a negative influence on children, or at least, uh, it's not, it not was, negative, but disruption. It was disruptive. I mean, it's just, I mean, if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody and you're away for any stretch of time and you come back, it's not like you can usually pick up like they left yesterday. And on top of that, you know, the men had been gone for, if they were captured in 1940, they didn't come back till 45 unless they got released through some other program. Uh, and, you know, they're not exactly at summer camp, even though that's how the government tried to picture it as, you know, this is kind of fun and they're doing this and that. You know, it's a prison camp. They're prisoners, you know. And so, you know, they're hungry and they're being worked really hard and, and they're in the war zone as the war is coming to an end. They're where the bombs are falling, right? right. So, and they're being marched as, as you know, um, sort of hostages if the German army needs them. They're being, you know, used as bargaining tickets. And um, so they come back after having had a difficult five years, and their wives have also gotten used to taking charge and running things. And so there was clearly not, you know, tension. Uh, And it was hard, harder than I think, you know, I think a lot of the publications that came out sort of romanticized when the the men would come home. Um, But what I found is, you know, just... You know, there's no way that there's. I couldn't find an actual statistic, but from what I looked at, it didn't look like the divorce rate amongst that those couples was particularly higher than the divorce rate amongst all couples in France. Um, so it didn't. You know, the, I think that was the concern is that there would be a surge of divorces, and there really wasn't. Um, there was um, pent up divorce for a, a variety of reasons, which you know happens uh, because Vichy had required couples to stay married at least three years before they could get a divorce. Um, and because when people are starving, they tend to just, you know, they need each other so they don't get divorced. So this is a common thing. So you have you do have a little upsurge of divorce after the war, but it's not driven by prisoners' families. So, you know, I think that they come to some kind of a, a new kind of way of operating over, the, over a couple of years of, of, of tension and, and difficulty readjusting. Is basically what I came to think. Right. So if we could step back for just a moment. So in our last episode, uh, I talked about women essentially in World War One, and then in the post-war period, how uh, women in France, unlike in much of the Anglosphere, they actually had their rights reduced rather than increased um, because of, in the Anglosphere, many of them got the vote, whereas that wouldn't happen in France until 1945. Right. So uh, I was hoping today we could do Vichy and maybe a little bit uh, farther as we sort of approach uh, women in uh, the modern French woman, so mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. 
So when all of these prisoners of war were taken by the Germans, this left, as you said, somewhere around 700,000 women who were essentially in charge of keeping the economy going and caring for the families without the traditional breadwinner. Can you tell us uh, about the effect this had on women? Right. So, uh, and the women, uh, actually, they, they would say this, you know, some of them, depending on their circumstances. Now, if they were on the farm, they'd clearly been helping with the farm. You know, the farming is a family operation in France. Um, but they might have to do things that they had not had to do before, like figuring out breeding. That might not have been something that they had done. Or, uh, you know, hire people to replace the male labor on the farm or find enough women. Um, if you saw that film, The Guardians... That gives you a really good idea of what women had to do to keep a, a farm going during the war. And I'll it's add it to my list. Yeah, it's backbreaking work. It is set in World War One, actually. Oh. Um, and so anyway, um, so yeah, they had to, and then in small shops, they probably had helped with the shop. So again, the it's not that huge a change to be, you know, working uh, in some way to keep as part of the family enterprise. Um, I think for middle class women, that was the one, they, they were the ones who were more likely to be having different kinds of experiences in the labor market than they would have, um, maybe not even have been in the labor market if they didn't have to. Um, so for them, yeah, so they're good. But on top of that, the other thing that happens in France, of course, is shortages. The Germans see France as this great breadbasket, which it is, and they uh, requisition and take huge amounts of production, of agricultural production, wheat and beef and all, everything, leaving the French with very little and rationing and hardship, you know, rationing, the, the, the rationing calories in some points were below 1,500 calories a day, which is, you know, a weight loss goal for, you know. Uh, yeah, um, so, the German and, diet. Or, you know, sometimes, like, they would, the Vichy government would say, well, they'll be supplementing it with unrationed goods. Well, that's fine if you have the money to buy whatever, but if you're a working-class family, you know. So, and when you do get to a shop with your ration tickets, there's a huge long line, and you have to wait in the line, and you get to the front, and the stuff you want is probably not there, and you might have to, you know, take what you can get if there's anything left. And so that's a huge operation just to get food and bring it home if you're living in a city. And um, a lot of couples would work out a system of taking turns in the line. Or, you know, while the wife is waiting in line, the husband could could be watching the kids or whatever. And these women didn't have that support. So they have to deal with um, a difficult situation, shortages, um, you know, very little uh, help, maybe having to add a job to all of that to you know their ordinary lives uh, one of the women i interviewed you know when i asked this question you know what 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 did you do that was different she said oh mama she said i've never even written a check <laughs> <laughs> and she um it, it was really funny um so i think that they did gain skills and and i think came you know in some cases they moved back with their families um, which made the labor easier but certainly um, led to its share of disputes over rules about raising children and things like that if there were kids. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they put it in very veiled terms when they write about it, but it's clear that it's not easy when you're being undermined <laughs> in your attempts to discipline your children by the indulgent grandparent or whatever, whichever way it goes. So um, anyway, so yeah, they had to really change their whole lives and, you know, figure out how to make things run. And that was not a role... 
you know, legally, they were not allowed to do that. Legally, according to the French legal code, they had to get their husband's permission to have a job outside the home, to, you know, borrow money, to do... And, and so temporarily, the government lifts all of that because of all these women. And so they, they're, they're doing things, they're just doing them. They have to just figure out how to do them. Um, and, you know, I suspect they did some of this stuff before, that the husbands weren't all little dictators, but... You know, they had the husband to say, well, you know, do you, do you think I should do that? I mean, you know, it's, it's just when you're the only person left to make all these decisions, it's a lot to, to take up. Yeah, I'm sure. So uh, one thing that is really eye-opening about your work is when you talk about ideology versus practicality. Mm -hmm. So Vichy was a heavily traditionalist regime that wanted women out of the workplace and in the domestic sphere while men worked. But since... Uh, potentially upwards of a million men were absent, wounded, or killed. Vichy pushed more women into the workplace. So did Vichy have an inadvertent positive effect on women's <laughs> rights for this reason and women's consciousness? Um, yeah, in some ways I would say yes. I mean, I don't know, like I say, a lot of, for a lot of women it's not a change um, from staying at home and being a homemaker to being in the workforce, but even if they were already working, it would be under new circumstances. Um, and for other women who are going to have to enter the labor force and they're going to be making their own money and making their own decisions. Um, and, um, you know, that's one of the arguments that's used at the end of the war in terms of giving women the vote um, was that they had proved themselves worthy, not just through the resistance, women in the resistance, that was the big thing, but also because they were able to keep their you know, families together and you know, sort of keep things going. Um, and just in the same way that economically, the traditional vision of Pétain and the conservatives around him was to go back to a rural France, small towns, small farms, you know, industry bad, you know, big business bad. Um, but because they have to meet these German requisitions, Vichy inadvertently causes a lot of concentration and rationalization of industry. Um, and so, you know, it, it promotes, in some ways, the modernization of France's economy in spite of itself. And I would say the same goes for women, is again, um, partly because of what they have to do. You know, they, if Vichy really wanted prisoners' wives to stay home, they would have given them much more generous benefits. But the, the, they got allowances because their husbands were away that were just ridiculously low and not adjusted for the real huge rate of inflation. And, you know, so they're talking out of both sides of their mouths. Um, so, yeah, I think that... And, and then the other thing, and I argue this in the second book, is when the war's over, there's this sense of, oh, God, we're done with... You know, because the, the distance between what Vichy is saying and the reality that people are living gets further and further. You know, when, when there's the shock of defeat in 1940... And somebody saying, you know, we're just going to go back and everything's going to go back to this wonderful, simple life. You know, it sounds pretty good, you know, in the shock of the moment. But as this sort of, I call it baby talk, keeps going and it's so far removed. And then you're having policemen pulling families out of apartments because they're Jewish and, and putting children, you know, arresting children. It's, you know, it gets further and further removed from what they're living and they get more and more cynical about it. Right. So, so one thing that I would just uh, know... Uh, it's, it's funny because in my own personal work looking at the munitionettes, mm -hmm. um, here you would mention how the French government, they hardly gave women welfare, um, which 
that is, uh, while at the same time expecting them to continue their womanly duties, as right. the case would be. And that's something which uh, happens also in World War One with the munitionettes, where they try to get women to produce the maximum amount of babies and the maximum amount of munitions. Well, meanwhile, the English are actually providing quite a bit of welfare. Mm-hmm. So one thing which um, we are going to get to in a little bit is this dispelling of myths about France, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them being how... Uh, this sort of turn towards being this huge welfare state, uh, extremely left-wing. This is a pretty new phenomenon. Yes. This is not something that is yes. uh, really part of France's older history. It, in fact, it was the, it was very slow compared to even to the German Empire. Yeah. Um, very slow to, to do anything in terms of protection of workers' rights, child labor. I mean, if you look at anything in terms of welfare... Now, the thing about the, the allowances for the women is that they didn't see it as welfare. They saw it as an entitlement because their husbands were absent in the service of the country. But women saw it as an entitlement, whereas the men... Well, the, the government, I think, also agreed that, that they needed to step up and replace the husbands. You can see that in the government documents, but they just don't pay them enough. You know, In other words, they, the, the talk is all, you know, these are our wonderful, our husbands are suffering. They, they, they have this image of the prisoners as suffering in atonement for France's sins mm-hmm. and, and sort of being purified through that atonement and they would come back and be, and meanwhile their wives are suffering, you know, so they have this sort of talk, you know, and we, you know, we need to sort of keep their wives and their families safe. And meanwhile, the allocations, I think I, I did at one point in the first book, uh, look at the, you know, the weekly allocation for a woman with, you know, one child or whatever, um, versus the cost of a dress, mm. you know, and it's just it's clear that those allowances, which were meant to replace the husband's salary while he was serving, you know, where he was in captivity, uh, came nowhere near. So they do talk about this as being an entitlement. Um, but uh, and then when the prisoners come home, it's a huge thing. It's a huge disappointment because um, they don't feel that they get compensated for what they've been through adequately, which again they see as an entitlement, and they have to fight for at least a decade to get anything close to what you know, uh, even even to be called veterans because some of them were captured on their way to their units. Mm. Um, so there was this whole fight about, well, you, you're not really veterans, you know. It, it, it was just this really um, sort of unpleasant thing that happened to the POWs when they came back. So, um, so yeah, on, one, on the one side it was an entitlement, but it's also true that in terms of welfare, um, France had been very far behind um, the other countries, including a more, much more conservative um, German Empire, um, in, in creating these benefits and providing for working families. Right. So uh, I know that your area of expertise isn't necessarily the resistance, but because there were so many women that were involved in it and were actually leaders of the resistance, uh, do you see this as having a big effect on women's consciousness after the war? Do we see women who were involved in the resistance now becoming leaders? And Not so much, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it was in the sense that was one of the main, you know, selling points for giving women the right to vote is that they prove that they're active, politically engaged, you know, they care about the republic through their activity in in the resistance. 
Um, so it's something that, that plays well into that, you know, uh, getting women the vote. And in fact, it's de Gaulle who does it while he's still in Algeria, I believe. 1944, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of done. It's not a whole fight in the legislature. In fact, in, in 1922, it was approved by the, by the Chamber of Deputies, which is the lower house. It was the Senate that voted it down. And so, you know, it, it wasn't that... If, if they hadn't had this Senate, which was set up to be a very conservative... There were Senators for Life, for example, it was set up to be a very conservative thing. Anyway, so, but, um, but yeah, I think that being, having the role in the resistance did give them um, the legitimacy for being politically active. Um, some of them, you know, I, I, don't know, I don't know that there are very many that got involved in politics. Now, I, I take that back. There were communist women in the resistance. They'd been engaged before the war. <laughs> they engaged during the war. They engaged after the war. You know, that's, you know, one of the myths is that, you know, women were totally apolitical. And, and my friend Paula Schwartz, who has worked on communist women in the resistance, sort of puts the lie to that. Um, so, yeah, I think that if they were already inclined to be activists, they would maintain that. I'm not sure that it got that many new women involved in politics. Maybe I'm just thinking of a great screenplay where a woman gets involved in the resistance, you know, frees Marseille or something, right. and then becomes uh, <laughs> the president. But yeah, that's no, something that takes, for fiction. Yeah, maybe the daughter or the granddaughter. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, moving on a little bit. So now let's talk about uh, liberation. Mm -hmm. So the incoming government gave women the right to vote. Though, in your book, you argue that this didn't have as big an effect on women as the post-war material benefits. So let's tackle these two different issues separately. Mm -hmm. So why was it that the sudden ability of all women to vote, where previously no women could vote, didn't have a huge transformative effect on women? And then we'll get to the material part. Well, um, because... Politically, and this happens everywhere, there's always a disappointment. Somehow there's this argument that women are a, sort of have a different outlook on the world and it's more caring and more family oriented and so therefore they draw bad things. Yeah. Um, but um, it turns out that women often vote very similarly to the way men vote, right? And it's not, it, it's not like you have men split between all of these different political trends and women all on the left. They're just as sort of divided across the spectrum as men. So that just you know, means that, that the politics kind of goes back to the way that it was. Um, and while there's a little bit of a, a sort of, I wouldn't call it a spike, but there are some women um, that are serving in, you know, in um, the parliament, for lack of a better word, uh, or as mayors or you know, in different positions right after the war, it's not as if it's, you know, all of a sudden 50-50 and that number starts to go back down as you go through time. Um, so the political system doesn't become, doesn't really change much as a result of women's voting. I wouldn't say that women's lives, lives don't change. Um, and the women, the first election where they can vote, you, you can see the pictures, they go out in numbers. They are ready. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it's important to them when they do get the vote, but it doesn't really change the politics overall, um, particularly for women. All right, so let's get to the second part of that. So why then did the post-war economic boom have such a huge effect on women, perhaps even more than right. the right to vote? Right. Well, 
again, we're going from a, a, a society that's made up, that's dominated by agriculture, and French agriculture is dominated by the small family farm, partly because of the French Revolution and the land settlement. And so you have lots of you know, small villages, you have some medium-sized cities. In the cities, it's artisanal. You have you know, workshops that are small, where, and you have shops that are small where the women might be working in the shop as well. And it's family-oriented. And they're very stable communities in which you know people know their place, and and you know it's it's it it leads to a very uh, sort of unchanging society in terms of how families operate. Um, then when, what happens after the war is um, what what they call the exodus. Again, they like the biblical terms, right. a rural exodus, and that is. That, that because of the economic changes that started during the war, you have bigger and bigger industries, um, you know, locating in uh, parts of France, like around the city of Paris and, and, and Lyon and um, Marseille, that are pulling people off the farm and into cities. Um, and that makes a huge difference. In, in fact, one of the interesting sort of unexpected things is that the number of women in the labor force goes down, and that's because in France, in the census, they count women who work on their family farms and shops as employed, whereas in some countries they don't. Hmm. But when they get to the cities, it's their husbands who are employed and the women are out of the labor force, so it, it looks like women's participation is, is dropping radically. Um, it's just that the families are in a different place and they're living differently. Um, and. Uh, and also the 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 wealth the well the family allowances. So one of the things that became clear as I looked at these household budgets is because France wanted people to have big families, they set up this system whereby the wages that you earn, if you're a man in the workplace and you're married and you have kids, your wages are going to be higher than the guy standing next to you on the line, even if you're doing the exact same job. Um, and so you don't get money for the first kid because they don't want single. They don't want only children. That's right. Um, number two, you, you get an additional twenty percent added to your monthly salary. Um, number three, you add another twenty percent. In other words, it's not like a total of your. No, actually, I think number three. I think you get thirty percent, but it's not like goes from twenty to thirty. It goes from twenty to fifty. Mm. Um, and so on. And so if you had, I think it was like seven kids, you could literally double your salary. Uh, it's huge. Um, and that pumps a lot of money into families at the, you know, well, it's universal, so it's for all families, but it really makes a difference in working class families. Um, and so they're becoming a part of the modern economy. Um, and wives, when you have seven kids, you're probably better off staying home anyway because you're going to pay so. a lot for whatever... Um, so, you know, it, it allows them to stay at home and it allows them to purchase these new things that then feed into the growing economy. So, but, you know, again, when you're not in a small village where everybody knows you, um, where things are done a certain way, where expectations are set, now all of a sudden you're in a big city, you know, your parents might still be back on the farm, you know, there's much less constraint on how you do things. It's, it sort of opens things up. Which is one of the reasons I think you finally have the baby book, is that people are not are no longer sort of being taught as they go by their parents or aunts or whatever, 
Um, now they need somebody to tell them what to do when they have a little baby. Um, so, you know, I think it, it really changes the, the circumstances in which people live to have that much more money available and to be in new urban, you know, units with, without that kind of old tradition weighing on, weighing on them. And one of your favorite things to talk about, which I remember from our classes together, is the new appliances like the washing machine <laughs> and how essential that was to creating the modern woman. Right. Well, if you polled women um, the, about what they most wanted when they could afford something, the washing machine would be number one. Because before then, you're literally having to go to a wash basin where they'd have these big wash basins and like, you know, wash your clothes in a big basin and then, you know, you have to take them back home and you have to hang them out on a line and you have to wait for them to dry and then everything's wrinkled so you have to iron it. It just takes a huge amount of time and effort. Um, or you have to t pay somebody else to do all of that. Um, so the, the washing machine... Yeah, you need to get a kid for that. You know? <laughs> Either for the money or to... Right. Well, I mean, the it. kids do help out. I mean, you see when, when there are big families like that, the older kids... Oftentimes they're working and bringing money home or, and or helping out with some, some of these chores. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think, you know, the, the washing clothes by hand, um, you know, remember before all of this happened, there wasn't necessarily even running water in all apartments, right? Um, much less hot water heater. So um, the... I think of all the things that women did as part of their domestic duties, the washer, the washing was one of the heaviest, and they were very happy to have help with that. Um, you know, cooking, shopping, that's sort of part of life as you go to the store and you make food, and, you know, it's, it, it doesn't really, um, it doesn't change life quite as much to have an electric range um, or whatever, you know. Right, yeah, no, I just think it's interesting how something like that can be so transformative. Right. Um, I talked about, uh, well, because this podcast is dealing with three million years ago to present, I talk about how uniform bronze tools are the whole thing that changes yes. all of society. Yes. And you wouldn't think, you know, why is this bronze tool so much right. better than a rock? But it right. really is. And the same <laughs> thing with a uh, washing machine. Oh, yeah, yeah. It makes the modern uh, it, world it in does. a lot of ways. It does. Actually, one of the women, and I wasn't even interviewing her. She was another scholar, but she was of an older generation. And she said, you know, I didn't wash my kids' diapers. I took them to a place where they washed them. But then I had to haul them up the stairs wet. <laughs> heavy and then hang them up I mean so that's just you know one child's worth of diapers what if you had two or three kids right and you want to explain why they were wet and heavy why they didn't get she didn't also get them dried because there were no dryers right France does not have clothing well there, there are a few places or a few where you can find them now of course in the big laundromats but that was just not something that, that French people had um, and so so she'd take all these terrible, stinky diapers to this one place, get them all wet and supposedly clean, and, clean. and then have to carry them back while they're wet and probably and, causing quite a sight. Right, and haul them up the stairs, and you know, not all buildings have elevators in, in Paris or wherever you might be, as you probably you may know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's heavy duty, and like I say, with kids, babies generate a huge amount of stuff that needs to be cleaned. So, um, so yeah, I think it's really uh, an important, um, the most important appliance, I think, in terms of 
freeing women from uh, a really, really heavy burden. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code FRENCHHISTORY50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash FRENCHHISTORY50 and use the code FRENCHHISTORY50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Right, so at this point, I think it's a good enough time to make a plug for your book, Vici to the uh, Sexual Revolution, because not only does it have a lot of really interesting history in it, but I think that the methodology is pretty fascinating. In particular, I think that it's very fascinating how you show that modern historians essentially have to be detectives and how we have to glean information from sources. My favorite observation you made was when you looked at theft cases between the 1940s and 1950s and noticed that theft cases were less about common necessities and more about consumer goods and appliances as time went on. And so from these cases you showed how France was becoming a richer consumer culture. Um, I thought that was uh, pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, would you like to give any other examples of inadvertent or unexpected conclusions you were able to glean from the sources you looked at? Yeah, I mean, the the, the theft thing, you know, it's funny because when you look through um, these files, they're, they're dossiers put together, you know, court hearings and, you know, testimony and whatever else happens, uh, and also social workers' reports. And um, that's a big important thing that happens for kids um, is that they have to have a report on their family milieu, basically. And, and by the post-war, mostly it's social workers are doing it. Um, and, um, you know, as I, I just, it didn't entirely surprise me, but to see the shift from, you know, oh my God, you know, in World War II is bicycles or bicycle tires, right? Or stealing food off the shelves or that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, so the first time I see, you know, a, well, a car, I can't even little Vespas, those little you know motorized scooters. You start to see them stealing that, and it's like okay, now we. <laughs> and the social workers were also very keen to describe the family's material surroundings very detailed ways. So you know again, exactly how much everybody's making, what they're spending on rent, how many rooms, how many beds, um, and you know whatever else they might have. And if the family has a car, I'm going to find out. Um, and so the first time I saw a car, I was like, oh, oh yeah, here yeah. we go, we got a car. Um, there was one social worker who felt like the family was not spending its money very well. 
the, the, the apartment was kind of a wreck and it wasn't very well maintained and blah, blah, blah. But the social worker says there was a magnificent television set in the middle. Of it. And you could tell that she thought this was a bad use of, of family resources. So you, you, you know, you're going to know if they have this stuff. And it's a good way to watch that trickle of material goods into, into working families. The other thing that surprised me in looking at the social workers' reports from war to, to peace was that focus during Vichy years on the mother and the father only insofar as was he in the picture, was he an alcoholic, um, you know, did he provide adequately for the family. And if so, um, you know, they'd interview the neighbors about all the family and what they'd say about the father was um, he's not the subject of any unfavorable comments. <laughs> So, um, and, and that's pretty much it. Whereas for the mother during the war, I know, you know, like there was one where she's Spanish type, her fingernails are dirty, you know. I mean, they describe the physical appearance, the personality of the mother, and you don't get any of that in the father. And like right after the war, I look at a report, um, I think it was probably outside of Paris, um, and they're trying to find the father to interview him. And then they say, well, we came across him in the garden. He was gardening. And I'm, I'm just stunned. Like, and my friends don't get it. They're telling me that he's gardening. That's just, it would, ne it would never have appeared. And so, you know, that implies that he's at home and that he likes to garden. I mean, that's telling you something about the man. Um, then you start to, and you start to get uh, the descriptions of their physical appearance, of their personalities, of their relationships with the kids. So that instead of thinking of the family as, you know, the father's the provider and the authority, and the mother's the one that has all the interactions with the kids, they're starting to see, well, mothers do, and fathers do, and fathers interact with mothers about the kids, and it's just a much more complicated p picture. And that starts right after the war, and that really surprised me. So... Yeah, it's, uh, again, I'm going to plug the book. It's definitely uh, a good thing to check out because I think it teaches the way that historians now have to essentially craft these narratives and be extremely critical of the evidence, probably just because there's so many of us and all the big events, all the big wars and all the obvious things are taken. Now we're writing uh, much more in-depth things that aren't immediately... Uh, come to the fore. Right. So, and I would say also that a lot of people, you know, one of the easy things to do, and I certainly did it, is popular culture, right? But you have to be careful because that's, you know, it's meant to sell and it's meant to sensationalize for some, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a reflection of ordinary people's ideas and beliefs and behaviors. So that's why I felt like I had to dig deeper and look for these other sources and particularly even though I was no longer looking at juvenile crime, using those court documents because they gave me a picture of the family um, was, was sort of the thing that came to me while I was doing the second project. So. Right. Well, so we've talked about women in general so far, but during this post-war period, there was finally a full-fledged feminist movement with figures such as Simone Beauvoir coming to prominence with the book uh, The Second Sex. Can you tell us how the feminist movement emerged and impacted this period? Right. So, you know, one of the things that is um, puzzling to people is, aside from Simone de Beauvoir, they're really, it seems like the book sort of dropped off a cliff and nobody really picks up on it. There's no organized feminist movement like you saw before 
World War I with women out in the streets marching and demanding. And that doesn't happen after World War II because women have the vote. So there's none of that. You know, like I say, the communist women are agitating, but they're always agitating. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's, I used to think that it just went off a cliff. But um, what turns out to be the case is if you look a little bit deeper, there are women involved in movements, particularly having to do with birth control and family planning. So a lot of the women who want to change women's lives recognize that if women can't control how many pregnancies they have, they have no control over their lives. Um, so you've got um, doctors and other women in these movements, and they, they call it um, they call it happy maternity. They don't call it family planning or, or birth control, but you know, so that so that women can have you know be able to control. But it's not that we don't like families or we don't like children. It's just that we, you know women need to be able to devote themselves to their children properly, the ones that they have. So you, there are these uh, women and these groups that are organizing um, and tackling specific issues that are of importance to women in the 50s. So I think I put one of the headings is, you know, there was feminism in the 50s, really? <laughs> because, you know, it's not the kind of thing that, that it's, that's out there in the magazines and whatever. You know, this feminist is out there on the soapbox, you know, trying to get support. You don't really see that so much as you do, like, again, in the, in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, but it's there. So. so one thing which the French History Podcast tries to do is dispel myths about France. I think the two big <laughs> ones that people have is that France is bad at wars <laughs> and France is liberal. And on the second part, this seems to be pretty firmly ingrained in Americans' minds, even though the French think of themselves as being very traditional and conservative up until 1968, which mm -hmm. we will hopefully briefly touch on. Um, so with that in mind, and I know this is a big topic, but can you go into why you think France lags so far behind, not just the English-speaking world, but... Weimar Germany, Scandinavia, and much of the Western world vis-a-vis -vis women's rights? Right. Yeah, well, again, I think that the, the, it's, you know, to me, a lot of it is the, the economic foundation because you have, um, you know, the vast majority of French families scattered around on the, in the countryside in very small villages and small cities, small towns. Um, it's... Um, it sort of keeps, you know, things tend to be in stasis, I would say. Um, they have enough to eat, they can keep their land, there's nobody forcing them off their land, you know, they can provide for themselves. It's a very rich agricultural place in France. The, 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 the land is really good for farming in most, many parts of France. And so um, I think that that foundation meant that things changed very slowly. Now, obviously, World War I uh, disrupts that to a certain extent, right? It does pull men away from their families. But again, I think that it, it, still, it still remains, I think, on, in 1939 or 40, France is still 40% rural, which is, you know, meanwhile, Germany's, what, 8% or, you know, I mean, it's really different. Uh, and I think that explains a lot of the difference. I mean, there are... Um, there are, you know, well, they don't call them flappers, they call them garçon. Um, there are, you know, new women and, you know... Which and women for are... our English speakers, garçon is a clever plan word that's essentially, what would you say, like tomboy or she-boy? Yeah. It's kind of hard to translate. Yeah, but a tomboy is like a girl trying to be a boy. Uh, and I think this is more that they're seeing them as um, 
little, yeah, I guess tomboy would be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of like, um, it's a diminutive, right? right? Our son is to sort of make it seem kind of funny. Um, and because, you know, and the thing is, if you think about it, before World War One, women wore, you know, were covered entirely. They wore, um, you know, corsets. They had hair that they had to put up. Um, and after the war, they cut their hair short, which to a lot of, was shocking to a lot of people. And they look like boys and they wear dresses that don't cover all the way down to their ankles. And their dresses don't have cinched waists anymore. And so they, you know, the idea is that they, they look like boys um, and they're desexing themselves. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of the, the upsetting things to, to, to French society. But that does exist. It's just that it's really, you're talking Paris and maybe some of the other big cities where that happens. Um, it, it's not something going on out, you know, in the countryside. Um, so I think, you know, things, things change a lot more slowly because of France's rural nature. I think that's the foundation of its more conservative, um, you know, slowness to, to, to change its ideas and attitudes about the family. Um, so one other thing that I would add to that, I think that's a, that's a perfect explanation. Um, but from what I've found uh, from my own work is one of the main reasons why French feminist movements struggled had a lot to do with problems with the left. Because France, for a very long time, yeah. had a far-left, socialist, anti-capitalist movement, and there were those on the economic left, but socially they were often very traditionalist and yeah. very uh, sexist. And in uh, fact, they emphasize that to make it clear that they don't, that, that, you know, socialism doesn't mean the destruction of the family. Right. Right. Even feminists would talk about, you know, they want to elevate the wife and mother. They don't want to destroy the family. So they feel that they have to sort of rest on that more traditional vision of gender relations. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, the last episode we did on the munitionettes, the socialist workers claimed that women didn't belong in the workplace. In your book, you note that the communists of the 1940s believed that women's place was in the home. And from my understanding, women really only developed a strong feminist movement when they broke off from male groups and made their own. Um, is that fair to say? Again, like I said, you know, they, they form a, a, a visible feminist movement when they do that. It's not like there aren't women who are doing this stuff, sort of, like I said, quietly under the scene, under the uh, radar screen. But, um, yeah, and, and the interesting thing and the sort of frustrating thing about France is that they finally, like in 68, this happens in many places where they get involved in these radical movements and student movements and whatever, and then they're told, okay, you cook for the group when we come over, you know, and they get frustrated and they, you know, start having their own demands. And so they break off and they, you know, they say, hell with this um, and start to form their own group. And so they created the Mouvement de Libération des Femmes and the MLF. Um, and, you know, they put, they published the Manifesto des Salopes, which is the, you know, the manifesto of 300 and some women who said, I've had an abortion. Um, and, you know, and, and then what happens, sadly, is that, that sometime in the 70s, this movement is sort of hijacked by this crazy, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble, so, <laughs> oh, okay. but, but they, it, it's sort of hijacked by a very bizarre, almost cult-like figure who, who goes off into this strange psychological, Sikepo they called it, 
And so the MLF ceases become being a, a, a force, you know, for change for women. It ceases focusing on political change, um, and sort of goes off the deep end. And so that leaves, but uh, you know, that doesn't mean that women aren't still going to be active. But that very visible movement sort of gets hijacked. So, but that's unfortunate. Right, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned the '60s and '70s because. There's whole problem between the female leftists and the male leftists is something that really isn't resolved even into the 70s. Mm-hmm. I remember, maybe you remember this, but I wrote a paper, which I think I got an A on for your <laughs> class, which uh, it was a famous case in the 1970s where an immigrant student raped a female French college student, and while feminists denounced the rape, a number of male left-wingers claimed that the only reason that men rape was because society restricts them from fully expressing their sexuality, and it was the state's fault that rape occurred. And so even into the 1970s, there was this clear divergence between... Right women and men on the left. Right, right. And like I say, that goes that goes way back. Um, if you look at, um, I think, I can't remember the name of the book, but the, you know, the, the women who wanted to be both socialist and feminist just were never accepted either way, you know, because feminists in the, not late, in the late 19th century tended to be middle class women. Um, and socialists tended to be, you know, men who didn't, who saw women as lowering men's wages, not as useful allies. So uh, you have the occasional person who tries to cross over those lines. Um, Madeleine Pelletier is one of them. Um, but they, they have a really tough time um, trying to you know, get socialists to think about women's rights as something that needs to be done separately. I mean, part of it is that they want to reassure you know, particularly the socialists, not so much the communists, they reassure society in general that they're not about destroying the family and turning society upside down. Um, but uh, on the communist side, it's like, well, first comes first things first. First we have to have the communist revolution, and then things for women will just magically be okay. But we can't be diverted into this thinking about the situation for women because it's, it's diversionary. It's not the fundamental problem. So for you know, it just you, you can't win right. <laughs> if you're a woman on the left um, in terms of sort of fitting into these movements. Which isn't to say that there weren't women who were writing and publishing. And um, you know, one of the interesting things that I'm thinking about now is I'm working on these two women who wrote in Marie Claire and Elle magazine in the '50s and '60s, um, who were advice columnists and who, in many ways, you know, were modern. They were modern women. They were professionals, and you know. But they didn't. They wouldn't call themselves feminists. So you know, that's not the focus of the book. But it's something that I keep thinking about in terms of, you know, one of them. And this is another factor in, in terms of French conservatism, the Catholic Church. Right. France is predominantly Catholic, uh, in you know, well past World War II, and then starting in the seventies, I believe, practice just just falls off charts. Um, and now there are probably fewer practicing Catholics in France than there are, you know, proportionally than in the United States. Um, there are very few people attend Mass regularly. Um, so, of course, the Catholic Church had been a force of um, sort of conservative um, values that, that sort of... So this woman, one of the women was Catholic, but she didn't really... She was more spiritually Catholic. She liked St. Teresa and that kind of mysticism. 
Um, she didn't really believe in following the, the rules particularly. Um, and so she wrote, and she was, people wrote letters to her all the time. She collected letters and she published in 1962 something called the Black Book of Abortion. Mm. And she doesn't say, you know, we need to legalize it. She says, let these women speak for themselves. And, you know, all of these awful stories about the things that happen and, you know, lives that are made extremely difficult or very painful things that happen when women don't, are not able to get an abortion. And she, you know, it's 1962. That's, that's you know, 15 years before anything happens in France. Um, you know, it's before Roe v. Wade anyway. Right. So, um, you know, so, so, again, she would not have labeled herself a feminist, but... In many ways, she and the other woman, Marcel Segal, were sort of pushing the way people think in in that direction. So right, it's almost as if women can seem apolitical because nobody is advocating for their side. Normally, we talk mm-hmm. about those on the right and the conservatives uh, hindering the promotion of women's rights, but in France and. I don't want to say just France, but mm-hmm. in France in particular, it's the left wing as well that mm-hmm. really aren't on women's side as well. So I think that, thought that was a pretty interesting thing to note. Mm-hmm. So, okay, uh, we only have so much time in this interview, and I know you are always working on something. Um, so I was hoping to end with this. Um, before we put a close on these special episodes commemorating Women's History Month, I was hoping to develop a narrative that brings women from World War I to present. So today, France has one of the highest rates of female representation in politics in the world and is considered to be one of only six countries on earth where men and women enjoy equal rights, according to the Women Business and Law Index for 2019. Mm -hmm. So can you explain then how... France went from being one of the most anti-women's rights countries in the developed world in 1944 to being one of the most pro-women countries yeah. And today. again, I'm not sure I would say anti-women's rights. Okay. I would say, you know, well, they got the vote, right? That you don't have groups particularly raising the issues about women as women. Um, they're mothers, right? Or they're nuns, or they're school teachers, or, you know, they're, um, uh, are there the young girls, uh, but they don't think of women as a category. In my book, it's the, the last part when you get into the 60s that you begin to see articles and studies addressing women as women. And that's one of the groups, I say, young women, women, and um, yeah, the, the young in general. Those are the three objects of concern, and women are the intersection of all of those, right? Um, but you begin to see this, this emphasis on women as having particular needs and particular issues that, that pertain to them just as by, by virtue of their sex. Um, so that's a, that's a big change. Um, so uh, um, now I'm trying, I'm forgetting the, 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 the narrative. Why so far behind? And why all of a sudden take over? One of the things that um, I'm often struck by when people look at France is that they look at the structure of support for women who have children. Um, that they have daycare, that excellent daycare that starts at the age of three, um, that they have maternity leave that's well generously funded, that the maternity care is funded, that medical care is funded, all of these things happen in addition to the fact that family allowances still exist. 
Um, and they say, oh, you know, it's too bad that feminists here couldn't get that. Well, it wasn't feminists that got that stuff. It was pronatalists, as you probably know. Interesting. The whole point, you know, the family allowances were passed by the Third Republic in 1939, and they were implemented by Vichy. And the idea is that they were so obsessed with getting their population growth rate back um, that they pump money into these families um, that they create things that make it that enable women, you know, when society begins to change, that enable that make it easier for women to be in the labor force, that you know have their children well cared for in in uh, in the crash in the daycare, um, that you know their maternity care is covered, that they get generous leaves. Um, I think now the husbands also get leaves. These things were not implemented on based on feminist pressure initially. They were. Um, you know, people concerned about the size of the French population um, and wanting to sort of encourage people to have babies. But that could all, that once the policies were in place and they were universal, they could be sort of shifted such that it used to be that you could only get the, the uh, bonuses if you were legally married. Hmm. Um, that could easily be, you know, these things are changed such that they no longer reinforce the traditional family. It used to be that only the father was paid the allowances. They went on his paycheck, even if they were both working. Um, that changes, right? So, um, yeah, I don't, and it used to be that you, I think it might have been that you're only eligible if the wife is staying at home. Uh, oh, yeah, there was, a, anyway, there was an allowance for when the wife was staying at home to supplement the man's salary so that the wife could afford to stay at home. And only, that could only happen if the wife stayed at home. But now it's either parent can stay home. Um, so you know it's become more feminist and gender, you know, gender neutral over time in ways that are extremely beneficial for women, um, and you know, and the French are sort of, you know, they have this sort of very strong legal system. If this thing says equal, you know, wages, then it's going to be equal wages. So I think, you know, I, I'm I'm not entirely surprised that in the pay differential between men and women might be smaller than it is in other places. Um, the political representation is relatively new for that increase. Um, it's up to 40% now. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Um, but, you know, that took a while for that to all to happen, for the more explicit attempt to improve women's lives to sort of to come along and take these things and use them uh, in very explicit ways. Um, but, you know, that has certainly um, changed things. And I think, again, so it's not, you know, the, the question is if you want, why didn't that happen here, for example, in the United States, um, I don't think you could ever pass something like a family allowance here because of race, right? We don't want everybody having lots of kids, right? And then, so, so I just... And also of economics, because in France, they're, because they have this big welfare state, they're fine giving women all these benefits. Right. But whereas in America, I mean, we're still fighting about health care, which right. is something everyone else just right. accepts. Right, exactly. So, exactly. It's, so it's not so much, uh, I, guess what, I guess what you're trying to say is it's not so much a feminism versus traditionalist issue. It's, mm -hmm. It more has to do with the big state. It does, I think. Um, and the ways in which that makes it possible for women to lead... To, to have a lot of freedom in determining how they're going to live their lives. Um, so, you know, obviously, unless you, unless you take the, so a lot of the burdens off exclusively off of women, 
um, it's going to limit what they can do with their lives. Um, and so this is, you know, I think that this has been a, a, a sort of a, a foundational thing. You know, it's still, you know. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.